Father, uh, would you send your spirit right now that the words of my mouth, the things you've given me to say tonight from your word, um, that the thoughts and meditations of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I was a kid, uh, I played in, believe it or not, all kinds of pickup games um, where we'd select captains and players, you know. And, and of course, there wasn't really a deliberative process by the captains. Uh, we all sort of knew who the captains were uh, because there was a dividing line between us and them. Uh, they were stronger or more charismatic, taller, obviously more athletic. And if you ever found yourself in one of those exacting situations, you know how harrowing it is to, to know precisely what number pick you are. You know what I'm saying? And, and we're not done with that yet. Like, you don't just grow out of this process. We just formalize it differently. Like, employers and schools draw lines. You have to get certain scores in order to get into places. The schools on the other side of it have lines for you. There's certain things they need to measure up to in order for you to select them. We have got cutoffs, and we give grades to say who's in and who's out. Romantic partners and friends do this kind of thing, too. When we get to something like dating apps, they're actually very specific sort of on-off switches, yes-no qualifiers. And with all these lines kind of being drawn everywhere for who's in and who's out, line drawing generally can be pretty terrifying. Just the fact that that happens. People are so, there are people who probably would want to come to something like this tonight, but they're so afraid that when they walk in the door, they're going to realize that they're not welcome. We're just worried about lines. And worse than just being terrifying, it can be wounding or unjust. Being rejected or or categorized and then dismissed because of somebody's lines. And I can empathize with you if, if you sometimes just don't want any lines to be drawn at all. Like if you're like, you know what, let a triangle have four sides. You know, I can empathize with that. But that world is terrifying too. Our scripture passage tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 10, just two verses. It's um, it's a thesis, and you got to trust me on this, you can read Leviticus if you so choose. Um, In the middle of chapter 10, it's the only time God talks to Aaron, who's the high priest, I'm not going to get into the context, okay, anyway. It's a thesis for the priests of Israel. It's a summary of their calling as priests in this world, these two sentences, And if you were here a couple weeks ago, or you're just familiar with the biblical idea that God is making a whole kingdom of priests, then you you also know that what, what God has called Aaron and his priests to do is a calling upon everyone who is in Jesus Christ in some way. And I want you to listen to these verses again with that ear, that this is not just a calling upon Aaron, but there's something about this that is also a calling that is picked up in Jesus and in the priests he's making of us in this world. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. You're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. The leaders in the midst of God's people were to teach them everything God has commanded and to be discerning, to distinguish, to draw lines between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. And the unclean, to not confuse these things. There's something inherent 
in the call to represent God to the world and the world to God, there's something inherent in that calling which requires distinguishing good versus evil. And tonight I want to unpack the idea of distinguishing, of of line drawing. With all the wounds caused from line drawing in this world, why is God commanding the leaders of his people to do it? Why is it a chief part of their job description and why might it be a chief part of our calling as followers of Jesus to name good and evil, good and evil? This is all over the Bible in a variety of different ways. In the New Testament, as an example, we are called to approve whatever is excellent. To lend affirmation and support to those things which are excellent. To set your mind on things which are honorable and not on things which are dishonorable. To set your mind on things which are pure and not on things which are impure. To think on things which are lovely in this world. And to not set your mind upon the ugliness of this world. To set your mind on things which are commendable and not those things which we can't or won't or shouldn't commend to others. If there's anything excellent or worthy of praise, set your mind on those things. You can read about this in Philippians chapter 2 and chapter 4. You see, to set your mind on something excellent, though, you have to be able to recognize excellence and to name that some things are not, in fact, excellent. To do this, there needs to be some discernment. I need the ability to be able to say this is pure and this is not. This is commendable. This is not. Are are the videos that I'm watching on my phone commendable or not? Are they pure or not? Are they excellent or not? Do they tell the true story of the world or not? We are to be people who distinguish between these things. In our culture, line drawing can be so dangerous and wounding. But understanding it as distinguishing something can also be seen as a good thing. When something is distinguished, it means that it's set apart in a way to stand out. There are things about them which are not common. We we still actually hold on to some element of that in the word distinguished in this world. Something about this person who's distinguished is uncommon. And saying that they're distinguished is actually celebrating them when we use that word. It's a glorifying them in a way, do you see? And that's not altogether different from how the writers of the scriptures are using the word distinguish. Distinguishing something is for the purpose of recognizing it and acknowledging its glory. But it's even more than that. And I'm going to throw some stuff at you guys. And this word means a lot of things. And if you're like, does it mean this or that? It's yes. Because I'm actually, in order to understand the word, I'm going to go back to where we first learn about the word. And that tells us kind of what's packed in that word. The Hebrew word for distinguish is this word badal. Say it. Say badal. Badal. B-A-D-A-L, essentially. It's used 52 times in the Old Testament. And it first shows up in Genesis chapter 1. It's used five times in the work of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Something about this word badal is tied to God's creation acts in Genesis chapter 1. Distinguishing somehow is a part of God making the cosmos. So if when you hear distinguish and you hear about things being destroyed or things being undone or things being whatever, it's not, there's nothing bad happening in Genesis chapter 1. Narratively, there's nothing. 
Everything that's happening in Genesis chapter 1 is called good. And five times, God, badal, badal, badal. He's, he's distinguishing, distinguishing, distinguishing. This is a part of how God made everything. He distinguishes the light from the dark, badal. The seas above from the seas below, badal. And then after Genesis chapter 1, you actually don't encounter this word again until you get to things related to the tabernacle which parks it at the end of Exodus and in Leviticus, where we are. It doesn't show up again until, until we're talking about priests and tabernacle. And the overwhelming majority of the time this word is used after those initial five times in Genesis and after the tabernacle language, almost every other time, there's a few exceptions, almost every other time it's referring to God wanting his people to be distinguished in this world. To not be like everybody else, but to be set apart and distinguished. Why? Well, go back to the beginning. What, what was God doing when he was distinguishing things in the creation account? First of all, it's just for the, somehow it's related to creation. For, the, for naming and glorifying things God has made. For, I would say for intimacy. You'll see as we unpack this. The whole purpose of God creating the cosmos is to have intimacy with his creation. We talked about this a few weeks ago. To dwell with them. Or in other biblical language, so that his people could be with their God and he could be with his people. Why did God make everything to be with us? The whole purpose of this thing is intimacy. This is why he creates. And his distinguishing is somehow a part of that. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians, it was a letter written to a church in Corinth, and it's the first one we know of, so we call it 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul waxes on about how each thing God makes, he gives a body and he that he chooses according to its kind. And each body he makes has a glory about it, even the non-personal things that he makes. So I'm going to quote him. He says, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Even stars differ in glory from stars. Paul says. That's distinguishing. There's distinctions and lines drawn even from star to star in the mind of God. The whole creation is so distinguished that each aspect of the God's good creation has its own glory. And when we turn the page to Genesis chapter 2 and we see humans made in the image of God, what we see humanity doing in Adam is two things, gardening and naming. Now, obviously, in naming something, I hope you can see how it's calling out the unique aspects of a thing, recognizing how it's different from other things in God's creation and giving it a suitable name. You can't do that. You don't say this is one thing and this is another without recognizing a difference between one thing and another and drawing a line somewhere. Listen to uh, one of my heroes, G.K. Chesterton, reflects on some of this dynamic. He said, if you draw a giraffe, this quote is in the web page, by the way, if you want to read along with me. Um, if you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If in your bold, creative way, you hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you are really fine, you, you will really find that you are not free to draw a giraffe. At the moment you step into the world of facts, you step into a world of limits. You can free things from alien or accidental laws but not from the laws of their own nature. If you, you may, if you like, free a tiger from his bars, but you're not, free to, you're not free to free him from his stripes. Do not free a camel of the burden of his hump. You may be freeing him from being a camel. 
Do not go about as a demagogue, encouraging triangles to break out of the prison of three sides. If a triangle breaks out of its three sides, its life comes to a lamentable end. Somebody once wrote a work called The Love of Triangles. I've never read it. But I'm sure if triangles were ever loved, they were loved for being triangular. Adam, representing humanity in the Genesis account, is naming the distinct animals he finds in creation. Noticing what makes them different. This one has stripes, this one doesn't. Let's call this one a tiger. This requires distinguishing. This is something Adam was doing in God's image before sin enters the world. It's a good thing. And he's also gardening. And now if you don't distinguish anything in a garden, and if you let it go, what happens? It becomes a riot of plants and weeds intermingled. If you want to cultivate a garden and make a garden beautiful, it requires that you distinguish between weeds and flowers, live and dead vines and branches, and the borders of the garden. And all of this distinguishing is for one purpose, for life and for beauty and for flourishing. This is what's going on in the opening pages of the Bible. Distinguishing is for the purpose of creation, for life, for beauty, for glory, for intimacy. And when, we, when that's what's happening at the beginning, and God starts using the language of creation to talk about what he wants his people to do, he, it's like a hyperlink going back to those pages. And so when God's people hear something like, you are to distinguish, the people of God are supposed to be hearing creation language. Somehow we're supposed to be putting things in order and bringing about beauty and flourishing in our distinguishing and drawing lines. But when sin enters the world, now we see distinguishing used for isolation instead of intimacy. You can read Genesis chapter 3 and you start seeing, you're different than me, I want to hide from you. It's your fault. You start seeing blame and accusation, not intimacy. For exclusion rather than inclusion. For guarding against others rather than making space to celebrate others. Now distinguishing is often used for death instead of life in a world fraught with sin. But, oh, this is a huge, huge point. Our God does not like to throw things away. He is in the business of redemption. He is in the business of redemption. And so even when the Israelites were distinguished against and made slaves in Egypt, God didn't say that distinguishing itself is bad. He actually called them to be a people who distinguish for a different purpose than the Egyptians. Instead of distinguishing in order to have power over others or distinguishing in order to bring glory to yourself, these people were to distinguish in order to promote the most amount of flourishing for the most amount of people. They were to celebrate life and keep death out. And at one level, y'all, we just have to do this. Like, it's not even arguable that we are distinguishing. We have to sort and categorize and draw lines somewhere. Josh was talking with me through this earlier today, and he was imagining just how overwhelming Netflix would be if there were no lines anywhere. If there were nothing to distinguish any movie from another. So no ratings, none of them are better or worse. No categories, because who's to say what belongs in what category? Just 3,600 movies and 1,800 TV shows all jumbled together. Good luck. You know, can you imagine how, over, how overwhelming Netflix would be? 
If there were no categories, if there was no sorting or lines or something like that, right? As it is, Netflix is currently offering my wife some movies which are in very peculiar and particular categories. So she has a whole section of a subcategory. I I just checked her profile to see what it said. And hers were, here's three of them, human connection movies. Another one called Secrets and Lies. That was like a whole subcategory. And then another one, European TV shows about royalty. Okay, so apparently that tells you some of the kinds of shows my wife likes. And, And she is not, I don't think she searched Secrets and Lies movies or European shows about British royalty or something, you know? Like she hasn't searched for that. But some algorithm or some group of people have realized that there's some linking connections. There's some common factors that distinguish these shows or these movies from others. And let's call it this. They're lines drawn by Netflix around some movies for the purpose of highlighting them, actually, and saying, attend to these, Anna. You might enjoy these. And that's actually quite lovely. And you could quibble about, like, what should be included or what shouldn't be included in this category, but you're missing the point. The point wasn't to be exclusive and to keep other things out. The point was to highlight and and, and say, you like this stuff. Let's celebrate it. If you're interested, my categories are very different. <laughs> Ensemble TV shows, blockbuster movies, and my favorite is this one, Geeked, colon, this is all one category, Geeked, sci-fi, fantasy, superhero, and more. Apparently, that's apparently my cat, one of my categories of movies, okay? We draw lines everywhere to establish some sort of order in the world. We are sorting and categorizing all day. Our brain, in fact, just, just really at a neurological level, subconscious level, you actually have to do this. So quickly and so often, we don't even know we're doing it. Your brain seems to be wired and oriented to make predictions in large categories so that other parts of your brain, particularly your prefrontal cortex, can be freed up to attend to things that actually need some deliberation and, quite frankly, more distinguishing. What God pushes forward in his people when he calls them to be distinguishing people, is that they bring a level of attentiveness to this reality of the fact that we are categorizing and sorting and drawing lines all the time every day. He wants his people to be aware of this and to bring attention to how they're doing it, why they're doing it, and to be thoughtful about it, that they bring a certain ethic to it, to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. We'll talk more about those categories in the weeks to come. But the overarching purpose behind distinguishing anything in the kingdom of God is to promote life and flourishing in the world. It's intended to be a creative act, not a destructive one, to highlight things we can appreciate and move toward them. And you could begin by taking advice from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, which Matt read earlier. Your powers of discernment are trained by the constant practice of distinguishing good versus evil. Let me say that again. Your powers of discernment are trained by the constant practice of distinguishing good versus evil. Are the videos I'm watching producing more or less flourishing? Are the thoughts and feelings that I'm nursing when I'm alone, the ones that I put on repeat and think about a lot, Are they producing life or death? Are the conversations that I'm having about people, particularly when they're not around, are they good or evil? How how do I spend my money? What do I do on my weekends? How do I drive? How about the thoughtfulness that I put into my text communications? Good or not good? Good or evil? 
There's no middle. And that sounds like a lot. Like all these, good night, man. All, every text. When God starts unpacking, like this is this thesis statement, and when you begin to sort of move uh, for us right in Leviticus, when you begin, you, it's, it's so much. When he starts unpacking what distinguishing looks like, it's everywhere. Days of the week, human interactions, every single meal. God does not take his foot off the pedal. When I said I want you to distinguish, there's only two things I want you guys to do, priests. Teach people what I've said and distinguish, 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 distinguish. Name, good, not good, good, not good, good, not good, good, not good. Over and over and over again. God wants us alert. He wants us sober. He wants us with eyes open, not falling asleep in the world. I know some of us do not want that responsibility, especially when midterms coming up. We're tired. We don't want that responsibility. And you, of course, you have that agency. You can. You can sort of put your head in the sand. And you can just let things run their course. You can decide, I don't want to decide. Which is, of course, a kind of decision. It's a willingness to hand over who else around you is making those sorting decisions and you're just agreeing with whatever that is. The algorithms and the apps parents, friends, school advisors and counselors. You can just let all of them make those decisions for you and you can bury your agency. Your dignity, though, friend, is wrapped up in your agency. And it doesn't make anything better to just say, well, I was just tired and I don't want to decide good and not good. But then the weeds just start taking over the garden. More chaos, more death. Please, tonight, hear this calling upon the people of God to wake up. To make the most of today. To distinguish good from evil. Recognizing that like a garden unattended will run to ruin, so too will the garden of our lives and the communities around us run to ruin without someone to distinguish good from evil and promote life. By refraining from doing this, by, by staying silent or asleep or complicit, we just let the culture around us and the trained habits of our lives distinguish on autopilot. And in no time, we just find a garden in need of a ton of weeding and pruning. It begins to get more overwhelming, not less. You all, probably everyone in this room has stories of that already. I've got it with, with relationships which were estranged, which were estranged. And I didn't want to get into it and start drawing those lines and figuring out what's good and what's not good. My finances were like a train wreck and I just close my eyes to it and don't want to deal. My eating habits or my, my, just how I spend my, what I'm watching. School, I have, you guys, I have, we could talk a lot, we have a lot of stories about failure in this. The weeds just getting nuts. And when you finally pull your head out of the sand, things are not better. They're worse. Things go, nothing stays static. I know many of us tonight are pretty overwhelmed at this point of the semester. I heard the word anxiety so many times today, so many times today. And, and I'm not interested tonight in just giving you kind of like a bunch of religious busy work to do. Please hear me. That's not what I'm interested in doing tonight. I'm kind of trying to give you a little bit of a diagnosis saying things are really unhealthy when we don't do this. And things are not going to get better if we don't attend to it. It's more like imagine you're sitting down to eat for just a minute. 
and I, and I, I don't need you to like run to the store and get a bunch of new food and throw this up. I just want you to pause. Just pause for a second. Give thanks to God and just consider. Just pause for a second. And, and my friend Jonathan would say, pay attention to your intentions. Just pause for a second and pay attention to your intentions. What am I doing right now? Is this food that I'm about to eat life-giving or not? As you're about to open TikTok or open your laptop screen to turn on some streaming service, just pause for a second and ask the question. Distinguish. Because these things we participate in are producing life or death. There is no middle. And I'm not asking you to do more busy work. I'm imploring you to pause. That's it. To actually do a little bit maybe less busy and just be thoughtful and active in how you're choosing your moments throughout the day. You and I are not alone. You're not being asked to do this alone. We tend to live that way on autopilot alone, which is another question to ask. Is this life-giving or not that I'm doing all this stuff so alone? I'm not asking for help. The Word of God, the author of Hebrews says, is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to distinguish and discern anything in this world. You don't have to figure out. Matter of fact, God doesn't tell us to decide what's good or evil. He tells us to distinguish between those things that he's already told us are good or evil. We are not in the business of deciding what's good. That is God's. We get to discover. And when we discover, we get to name and celebrate. The scriptures, this word of God, this written word of God, help us to distinguish and name. And so too, the church of God has been teaching and interpreting and proclaiming what we find in scriptures all down through the ages. You and I are not alone in distinguishing good from evil, but you and I are personally and corporately called to join in the work. And then, of course, when you can name what's good, choose good. Instead of drawing lines and distinguishing for the purpose of safety or comfort or power over others, in the kingdom of God, Jesus draws lines and distinguishes for the purpose of glorifying others, for creating and redeeming life, for naming and recognizing and calling forth beauty in this world. Do you know that that is an option you have in your agency to name and to celebrate beautiful things, to call good things good and where you see evil to name it as such? to not fall asleep to evil in this world. Yesterday morning, I woke up to a scream. One of my kids was physically hurting one of my other kids. And I, I was in a rage. Partly I was in a rage because I was woken up by a scream. That's part of it. I think that's pretty normal. I'm not too hard on myself for that. Okay? Partly because one of my kids was being hurt. That's an okay reason for me to be angry too. And partly because one of my kids was choosing evil, which is also an okay reason for me to be angry. So I had three, three things at least that I could name I was pretty upset about. And I was faced with some discernment. In the midst of that moment, I don't know how you are right when you get out of bed, especially if you're woken up like that, but discernment's pretty hard in that moment for me. How do I distinguish good from evil? And I tell you, I wanted to draw lines fast. I wanted to know who did what, who was at fault, what does justice look like? I was coming at those things hard. But deeper than that, I also needed to discern my own motives. I didn't just need to discern and distinguish what's happening out here. I needed to figure out what's going on in here. What stories were in my head and my heart that were good and for, e and for evil? Like how much of my anger was just that I hate screaming happening in my house? 
How much of it's just that? How much of my anger was that I just wanted to go back to bed and didn't want to get up right now? How much of it was just that? And I'm so much bigger than my kids. And I have authority over them. And so I can leverage all that to just make whatever categories of justice I want. And there are things I wish I could have taken back. I wish I could have breathed a little bit and said a prayer. I wish I wouldn't have raised my voice after my initial encounter with my kids. There are a couple of words I wish I could take back because I know that, that a couple of my words probably produce a little bit of shame in one of my kids. I thank God that my convictions were heightened by his spirit and got a hold of my heart because even in the midst of my anger, I wasn't thinking about pure and impure. I mean, this, I was preaching on this. I still wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking holy and common, you know, that kind of thing. Um, not in those words anyway. I wasn't even thinking of good versus evil in terms of categories. But everything I was thinking and feeling was in line with that. Like I was thinking, I want intimacy with this child. And I want this child to be safe with me. There's one I'm thinking of right now is the one that was the perpetrator, okay? I'm like, I actually want intimacy with this child. I want this child to be safe with me. I want them to be safe with others around the house. And right now I've got a choice to make about which direction do I go. How do I choose wisely to maximize the possibility of intimacy and flourishing in our house? And something like those words were actually close to my heart. It wasn't like a deliberation, like a thought with those words. But, you know, like I was aware of those dynamics. I was like, ooh, i got to be careful right now. Because everything's heightened in anger. And it's so easy to slip into like, go to your room. Don't ever do this again. You're grounded for life. No cell phone until 20. You know, whatever the thing is. Like, there's all these kinds of lines I could just start drawing, you know. Worse than any of those might be like, why are you somebody who does things like that? Like, I could say something like that if I'm not careful right now. Oh, man, Jason, life and death are right before you. What are you going to do? It's just a Monday morning at 6.30, y'all. It's just a Monday morning at 6.30. And I was, I was pretty stern with the perpetrator, okay? I'd actually ask them to come up with a way that they were going to be reconciled with their sibling and then run it by me, and they couldn't move until they did that. And until that was done, it was, a little, it was an intense 10 or 20 minutes, Okay? But we got to hug for a while and we actually talked, both of us, we actually sat and talked in tears, both of us, about how each of us hate it when we wound other people in our anger. And this kid was the first one in the bedroom this morning, jumping on me and giving me a big hug. And my other kid, I actually had to wait till the end of the day to talk to that one, the one who was sinned against by their sibling. Because in just a spirit of discernment, I had this thought, and I think this was a good decision. It's not always right, it just... Gosh, you guys, the pressure's off. God just wants us to aim at these things. He's always got to add grace and mercy to all of our decisions. I was just like, man, I'm still kind of heated, and I didn't want this child who already probably felt unsafe because of their sibling to feel more unsafe with me or like they did anything wrong just because I was still heated, you know? So I was like, I just need to wait. I just need to wait. And so after school, I found this one kid, and I said, hey, I know that your sibling hurt you this morning, and I'm so sorry that you experienced that in our house. And I want you to be safe, and I want you to be, I want you to know it's not okay. If you ever need my help, come get me. And also, let's make sure we don't ever do that to somebody else. And I think there's all kinds of things I could have done better, and I know there's all kinds of times I do it worse. But discerning good from evil is all those kinds of moments, y'all. It's not just like, what career do I pick? Although that too. It's the daily grind. 
It's the text that I'm responding to or not. It's, the, it's what I'm thinking and, and the thoughts I'm nursing right before bed when you're deciding what to do with a few extra hours with how you view and spend and give away the money you're stewarding. Distinguishing good and evil is in all of those moments. And it's wild that other than teaching what God commands, the other major thing that the priests of God were called to do is this. Distinguish good and not good. Do not be people who mix those things up. Do not be a community where evil is existing in your community. Name it. Call it out. Get it out. When people come in here, there ought to be flourishing life. They ought to be safe with us in our homes. And it is uniquely scathing when church communities and Christian communities have evil running amok. Churches are definitely not uniquely bad. But, they, but, but even the unbelieving world expects churches to be uniquely good. To always be aware and awake to good as opposed to evil. That's good. That's not good. That's good. That's not good. That's good. That's not good. Pay attention to your intentions. Take a breath. And what if you don't need to do much more than that? What if if you have said yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God is so faithful, leading you into conviction and into all truth, what if all you need to do is just pause and say, that's good, that's not good, and the Spirit of God will do His work? God has called us, friends, to be sober and alive and knowing good from evil and not falling asleep to that in the world. God wants this for you and for me, and somehow life and glory and beauty and flourishing are all bound up in this. We're going to explore this more in the weeks to come into some particularly very interesting and loaded passages in Leviticus. But for now, tonight, we're just going to take a minute of silence, and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what is one area of my life right now where I can be more discerning, where I can begin to distinguish good from evil? God, you just pray that. God, what is one area of my life where I could distinguish good from evil and I could see more flourishing come because of it. Just take a minute to think about that. Pray if you want. And I'll close us in just a minute. God, I give you thanks that every single person in this room you have called into existence by name. A name that your scriptures lead us to believe you we will one day know. We don't even know him yet. We don't even know our new name yet. That each one of us you have given a body to and, and though our bodies have been marred and wounded by this world and by the, the, the evil ways people have drawn lines in this world, in our creation, you still call us good. And you meant to make each one of us. I give you thanks for that. Lord, in a world, in a culture, where it's super hard for, for so many of us to name anything good or evil, and, and, and we do, there's a lot of fear around that, we have so many bad examples of that. There's a reticence to it, Lord. 
I trust, God, that, that there's something really good and beautiful being offered through your people, not confusing evil and good. Not being silent about evil and not being silent about good. May we be people that name good where we see it. Lead us by the power and work of your spirit in our convictions, not, not for the purposes of shame. Good night. That's, that's bad. We want that out. But where, Lord, we can live in more redemptive and flourishing ways, lead us into it. Not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world and for your pleasure. May our families and our roommates and our friends and our professors and our employers, our romantic interests, even our enemies know us as people that are calling out good where we see it. And people who are creating and promoting flourishing and celebrating in this world. Thank you that in, in, in space-time history and in the courts of heaven and the promises one day just reverberating through the cosmos, thank you that you celebrate each one of us. Help us to know that tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.